Welcome to Pemba On Demand. I'm Norm Chapin, your host. I am very excited to welcome you to our podcast. Pemba On Demand is produced for physicians interested in professional development. We will be discussing a wide range of topics on the podcast. I will be interviewing physician leaders from the U.S. and from other countries who have graduated from the Physician Executive MBA program at the University of Tennessee. These physicians will be sharing stories of professional and personal growth, overcoming challenges in their organizations, and discussing key leadership skills they have learned from the MBA program and ongoing professional development. Today's show is entitled Healthcare Economics, Navigating Value in Medical Education. I am pleased to introduce Bruce A. Meyer. Bruce was a guest on our show last month discussing value-based care. Today, we are going to be discussing medical education, undergraduate and graduate medical education, and the impact of the growth of value-based care on medical education. As a reminder, Bruce is Executive Vice President and Western Pennsylvania Market President for Highmark Health Network. He oversees Highmark Health's blended payer provider strategy in Western Pennsylvania and in the Western Pennsylvania market. Bruce joined Highmark Health back in 2022 after serving as president of Jefferson Health in Philadelphia and serving as senior executive vice president of Thomas Jefferson University. In that role, he was responsible for all of the clinical services in both acute care and outpatient settings. Thomas Jefferson University, Bruce was executive vice president for the health system affairs and the executive director of the faculty practice plan at the University of Texas Southwestern in Dallas. A prolific author and educator, Bruce has served as residency and fellowship program director and academic chair in other organizations. Bruce is also an alumnus of the Physician Executive MBA program at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. He completed his MBA there in 1999. So, Bruce, welcome back to the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you back on again. I've been looking forward to talking with you about this topic ever since we began planning these podcast episodes. And I'd be interested, first of all, in your take on... But the curriculum topics haven't really changed in in substance. The curriculum topics are still fundamentally around... Um, you know, learning anatomy, learning physiology, and then learning pathophysiology. And then in the clinical arena, it's learning about, it's fundamentally focused still on learning about taking care of exacerbations of chronic disease and taking care of acute issues that present through the ER. The bulk of our training, it, while we still talk about putting people in ambulatory clinics, the bulk of our training still takes place in hospitals where people are sicker and, and admittedly the opportunity to see disease and its effects on human beings and their families and their lives. And that's important. And I don't want to suggest in any way that we should veer away from that. But what we but what that does is it creates practitioners who are focused around sickness. They're not focused around wellness or well-being. And, and because the way that we care for people is we wait until you're sick or we try to mitigate your sickness so that it isn't really bad, as opposed to a, a, a curriculum that's really designed around preventive health care, around how do we maintain wellness, how do we uh, take people and try to prevent disease from occurring. We're very sophisticated at managing joint replacements, as an example. But joint replacements has occur as a result, mostly in this country, of issues of wear and tear, 
and that wear and tear significantly exacerbated by obesity. We do virtually nothing in this country to talk about obesity, to train our learners around how to prevent obesity or how to manage obesity effectively. In fact, we've been so unsuccessful that there are whole industries devoted to obesity that have nothing to do with medicine, Weight Watchers, all these other kinds of things. We have some recent developments with the GLP-1s, but we have the dilemma of the economics of GLP-1s. But the curriculum that we teach people about really doesn't talk about how do I talk to people about healthy eating? How do I talk to people about the effect of fast food on their body? We have some wonderful experiments by individuals of I'm eating McDonald's for a year and this is what happens to me physiologically and biologically. Um, We don't talk about that in curriculums at all. We don't talk about mental health. Like every practitioner at some level should have the ability to screen and the ability to look for warning signs around mental health. But we have a mental health crisis in this country. And and we kind of say the only people who can manage that are psychiatric social workers, psychologists, and psychiatrists. We ought to be training every medical student and every specialty around how do you recognize folks and how do you get people triaged to the appropriate place. We do nothing. uh, I mean, as a culture, we do nothing about gun violence uh, in this country. It's pretty unique to the United States. But in our curriculums, we don't talk about talking to new parents about if you have a gun in the home, how do you manage that with children to prevent the literally tens of thousands of children who die from gun violence in this country every year. We know about the effects of osteoporosis over time. We know that we can prevent effects of osteoporosis by weight training and by exercise, but that weight training and exercise has to occur when you're in your mid-30s. And I mean, there is positive effect when you're in your 60s and 70s, but it's it's minimal compared to what effect you can have when you're in your 30s. We do no curriculum training around the, some of the things that we have shown that have high productivity, productivity of longevity, like flexibility, like balance training, like strength training after age 40, where we know that we're losing sarcomeres and we're losing muscle um, volume and muscle strength. And we know that if you can maintain that muscle strength, your longevity is significantly extended by as much as 10 to 12 years. We know that balance work helps prevent people from having falls that result in injury. doesn't mean you don't fall, but it means that if you're strong enough to catch yourself or you do balance work so that if you, you, you trip on an uneven sidewalk, you don't fall in a way that um, breaks your hip, that then results in, I got to go to the hospital, I got to get an operation. And we know that tragically in this country, that after a broken hip, 50% of people have died within five years. Um, but the preventive work to prevent you from breaking your hip is stuff that we don't train people on. Fracture prevention in this country is not part of any medical school curriculum. Um, It's barely part of orthopedic curriculum at all in this country in terms of residency programs. It's barely part of physical medicine and rehabilitation. We have a better fracture training program for people who you have fractured once, and now we have a fracture prevention program for repeat fracture than we have for preventing you from having a primary fracture where we have almost no training structure. And the difficulty there is in a world where the economics of healthcare are unsustainable, right? We Almost 20% of our gross domestic product is spent on healthcare. Um, we know that it's the single largest cause of personal bankruptcy in this country. We know that that's an unsustainable trajectory. So what, what can we do to prevent that? Well, it may take us a generation to do that, but the way we have to do it is to actually teach our practitioners about how to educate their patients and families about better health behaviors 
that will, in fact, impact your life, not today, but profoundly impact your life 20, 30, 40 years from now in terms of quality and quantity of life. Because if you do that work early, you get a longer life. And that's what we see as an example in other cultures that emphasize that Japan's probably the the, the, the best or Norway uh, or Sweden as an example where uh, exercise early in life and continuing exercise is part of the curriculum of every provider training program, whether that's doctors, whether that's nurses, whether that's um, nurse practitioners or, or physician assistants, as an example. And it's part of the culture of what people do. People expect that they're going to exercise in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. In this country, we have none of that. We have none of that training to create that culture that would allow us to, in fact, get better outcomes for the care we're capable of providing. So I have a couple of questions about that. Number one, we've been moving towards value-based care for decades now. What have been the major barriers to modifying the medical school and residency training focus to take that into consideration? So that's one one question I have. The second question is, it, it seems like in addition to Weight Watchers and other completely secular weight loss endeavors, there have, has been a huge growth in alternative practitioners in our country who seem to make the case fairly forcefully that modern medicine, what we would consider to be allopathic or osteopathic medicine, just is not designed to be the right tool to prevent illness, right? We're focused on treating disease, as you said, and trying to cure disease. But they've kind of stepped into the gap, it appears to me. There's there's so many different alternative practitioners out there from naturopathic physicians to homeopathic physicians to all sorts of other providers. So I'd like your I'd like your thoughts on those two things. Sure. Um, let me start with the barriers issue. A lot of the barriers for us are that the vast majority of current practitioners who are the people who are training the future generation don't actually have any training or education in this area themselves. And so it's hard for me as an educator, if I don't have that as part of my own curriculum in my head, to be able to then impart that as part of the curriculum that I give to learners, right? We ought to be talking about how do I prevent, um, every time I do a joint replacement, orthopedic surgeons ought to be talking to their residents and their medical students about, hey, this could have been prevented if, wouldn't have had to do this if, kind of thing. So some of it is we haven't started and embarked on educating, you know, training the trainer, if that makes sense, about, hey, this is critical for us. I think the second piece of it, and we touched on this in, in you know, our discussion about healthcare economics. It is that um, most practitioners in this country are still not functioning in an economic system in which they have up and downside risk around total cost of care. Most people in the value-based world are either in an upside only or with a, with a very narrow corridor uh, of opportunity or are in sort of up and downside arrangements in which the big organization that they're part of is taking the risk, but they personally are not. And so the economics of how that works is fairly invisible. I'm still getting paid what I'm getting paid. I'm being asked to do documentation differently or asked to do certain things in a more efficient way around sort of care pathways and care management work. But my income isn't really being affected at all. And so I don't see the economic effects 
of what's going on in terms of value-based programs. And so because I don't see it personally, it's very hard for me to talk about it with a medical student or the resident or the fellow. So that's a tremendous barrier for us. I think the second big barrier for us is what I would call the, the cloistering of academia, which is that academic practitioners tend to be in a very um, protected environment in terms of the economics in which they work. And they're not generally part of the folks who are interacting with a value-based economic structure. And so deans and associate deans for curriculum and chairs and residency program directors and clerkship directors are not themselves uh, sort of in the world of developing the economics of their organization. It's other folks who are doing that economic work. And because of that, they don't have a continuous sort of learning experience, but also a continuous personal experience of, hey, so this is what it means. And this is what it's going to mean in the future. And because of that, curriculums are not developed and people don't focus on it. And we haven't made it a priority. And, the you know, the American college ACGME folks um, haven't made it a tremendous priority. The residency review committees of every residency in this country have not made it a priority. And we talk about preventive medicine, but mostly we talk about preventive medicine is let's make sure everybody gets, you know, colonoscopy and a mammogram and a pap smear appropriately. But actually, most of what we could do preventively is much more profound around healthy lifestyle, uh, healthy eating habits, exercise, not smoking, you know, those kinds of things. And I had a very brilliant professor when I was um, in residency uh, who said that you could probably reduce healthcare costs by 40 to 50 percent in this country if everybody quit smoking, maintained a reasonable body weight, exercised on a regular basis, and had a higher paying job. The problem is all those things are really, really hard. <laughs> so uh, so that's complicated. So that's the sort of the barrier piece. I think, you know, this, the second part of your question, I think, is very profound, which is that um, because of these barriers and because we have left this gap of people trying to understand what would actually result in a healthier individual, there ha- other players have come in to fill the gap. And so the naturopaths and all of these sort of startup venture capital kinds of things, the nutraceutical industry, the vitamin industry, et cetera, et cetera, all come in because there isn't much regulatory stuff around that. So it's, there's very few barriers to entry. But it is that there's a hunger and a desire on the part of the average human uh, in this country to understand and try to feel healthier, try to feel better. And if their doctor, you know, or their nurse or nurse practitioner is not providing that, they're going to seek other folks who provide it. I was fortunate to have experiences in my career in the public health service uh, with the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And and I worked on the Navajo reservation. The Navajo have a saying that... um, that I can't pronounce because uh, it's in Diné, their nat- native language. But the translation of it is basically that Western medicine takes care of the broken leg and Navajo medicine takes care of the person who has a broken leg. Yeah, I think and, there's many of the alternative therapies that are alternative practitioners who feel that that is their niche in in this society and in our culture is to provide holistic care and to address those areas, which what we now refer to as traditional medicine, but a hundred years ago, it really wasn't the traditional medicine. It really was a lot more similar to what naturopathy or homeopathy is right now. 
I've been listening to a book called The Social Transformation of Medicine by Paul Starr. And uh, fascinating, I never realized that the Hahnemann School of Medicine, that Dr. Hahnemann was a homeopathist. And Correct. I, I don't know how I never knew that, but I, it was pretty interesting that there was this clash of which which model of medicine was going to reach ascendancy in the U.S. And it was unclear for much of the 1800s whether it was going to be allopathic medicine or naturopathic or a combination of homeopathic medicine. So I thought that was just, fa- it was a fascinating chapter in the book. Yeah, I, I've read it myself and I agree. It, it is one of the things that we move past all kind of those kinds of things and, and we don't teach history. Mm-hmm. One of the things that we don't, again, part of the curriculum is, hey, this is where we came from. Medical students, you know, have no idea that like most doctors, the doctors in the 1800s were using leeches to, you know, and right. evil humors were trying to be removed from the body kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And those were, and everybody was a doctor. That was what the doctor did. Yeah. And today we would go, well, those are the people that I don't really want to work with. And even though we're using leeches now, actually in some wound care, it turns out to be very, very, very valuable. So we've come, come full circle that way. But I agree with you that when we don't, as an allopathic or osteopathic, for that matter, provider, take care of the holistic human being, there's a gap and that gap will nature abhors a vacuum. That gap gets filled and it gets filled in, in sometimes responsible and sometimes irresponsible ways because people perceive it as a gap. One of the interesting things uh, I think that unexpected facts of specialization and now subspecialization and super subspecialization. I joke that you can specialize in the lower pole of the left kidney, and that's all. You never have to take care of the upper pole or the right kidney. Is that when physicians had to go into people's homes and they had to interact with, you know, multi-generational families and spouses and people in their um, native environment, you had no choice but to take care of them in the context, take care of whatever disease you were dealing with in the context of their life. And the sort of um, physician-centric environment that grew up starting really in the 50s and 60s, where instead of us going to where patients were and families were, we made them come to us. It's interesting that we talk about social determinants of health, and that's something that we have to train medical students, doctors, and residents about. But in the days when the physician was involved with the community in a very different way, to your point, that they were treating in the homes, you just knew the social determinants of health. You knew the poverty that people were experiencing. You knew when they didn't have transportation. But now it's something that we actually have to remind ourselves about because we're so used to seeing them in our environment that we don't understand their environment anymore. Exactly. And I think, you know, curriculums and, you know, this ties back to value-based care, which is that if you don't understand the context of that individual person and what their ability is to comply with your treatment regimen or what their feelings are about the treatment regimen that you're prescribing, then not surprisingly, there's lots of non-compliance. When there's non-compliance, there, you know, you get people coming to the ER, you get people having exacerbation of chronic diseases repetitively that we spend time, money, and effort on. And the economics of that disease get worse and worse. And if we don't figure out how to manage the person who has an illness in their context of their life, then not surprisingly, we don't get optimal outcomes. And again, that's a curriculum failure for us 
it, it is interesting, even social determinants of health, we teach our students about it, but we fundamentally create a parallel structure that is trying to deal with social determinants. Mm-hmm. The doctors aren't really doing social determinants. What we've done for the doctors, uh, and I'm, we're guilty in my system, just like I think we are in lots of other systems, is we've created a button in Epic that you can click so that somebody else comes in and goes, oh, this person needs help with finances, or this person needs help with getting their prescriptions, or this person needs help with transportation, or this person has food insecurity. I don't deal with that, and I never had that conversation I have there's other folk in the system that deal with it. And all I have to do is identify it and click the button and then magic happens. The problem is that the magic isn't very magical. And admittedly, no doctor and no individual healthcare system is going to solve social determinants of health. But nor are we free to walk away from it because those social determinants of health are, in fact, determining health outcomes for people and are, in fact, affecting the economics of the healthcare ecosystem in terms of how expensive it is and who's paying for it. This podcast is sponsored by the Physician Executive MBA program at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville's Haslam College of Business. In less than one calendar year, this program will equip you with valuable business acumen and leadership development not found in traditional medical school curriculum. Are you ready to join the longest-running physician-only MBA program in the country and a network of nearly 1,000 PEMBA graduates? Visit tiny.utk.edu forward slash POD podcast for information about this exciting opportunity. And now we'll return to the episode. So let's talk a little bit more about some solutions. Uh, I think we've done a good job of identifying some of the challenges that medical education and graduate medical education face. We talked on your last appearance on the show about how there are incentives for providers to do the right thing, provide value-based care. Where do those incentives come from for the medical education system? And are the payers going to be involved, in your opinion, in making sure that those are focused on in the curricula for residency? Is that going to be a governmental initiative? How do you see it changing and where do you see the solution coming from? Yeah. So this may be idealistic, but I think it has to come from both. I think it is both the government and payers that have to get involved Um, I think it is more critical. It's hard to say what it's more critical for, but I think at some level, the government is crucial for the government because the government pays for 60% of the healthcare in this country. And if the government wants to spend less money on healthcare and we, and you know, and that trajectory is getting worse because of the aging of the boomers into Medicare. Um, If the government wants to, you know, plateau its per member per month or per member per year costs around the large proportion that they insure, we've got to find a way to, to get back you know, and this is a generational issue. This is not going to get solved in two years or five years or three years. But the government's got to get involved in how do we emphasize for care providers who interact and have the trust of the public that we've got to educate the public about preventive work that they can do in terms of lifestyle. And, we, and we've got to take into account social determinants and how they create barriers for doing that kind of preventive work in terms of lifestyle. And we've got to figure out better mechanisms to be able to solve those social determinants. And like we, like a lot of other Medicare Advantage programs, as an example, provide zero dollar cost programs in which you get food cards for 
uh, certain categories of folks so that we can help support food. It is a tragedy in this country that we argue about the SNAP program every few years and funding it when we know that the SNAP program actually creates nutritional standards. You can't spend, you know, as a general rule, you can't spend SNAP money on foods that are unhealthy. You got to spend it on healthy foods. So why are we not doing more of that kind of work across the country? Why are we not training practitioners to do that kind of work and to educate people about that? And I think from a, um, you know, from the payer standpoint, from the commercial payer standpoint and the managed care uh, payer standpoint, the same benefits accrue, right? If I can work more effectively on your lifestyle and I can help you figure out how to um, have more food security, how to have transportation, how to um, get your meds uh, filled and make sure that you take your medications as prescribed, I can prevent you from coming to an expensive ER visit or a hospitalization. So, I mean, there are clear return on investment financial incentives that are there. We're just not really you know, using those financial incentives to help practitioners help patients and families. So what would a model look like where instead of the ACGME coming into a residency program and, and really ranking that program on how well their students or residents did on the in-training examinations that's very much focused on acute care and management of chronic disease. And the same thing with the USMLE exams, even the exams that we offer for foreign medical graduates coming into this country, those are all very focused on, as you said earlier, how well did we train them to do procedures, to take care and diagnose zebras in a, in a lot of respects, rather than really focusing on how we achieve wellness and health in this country. So I don't know, you've been in academic medicine as a professor, and you've been a program director for residency programs. How does the money that flows into hospitals and medical schools need to be modified in order to help those programs change their educational curriculum? That's a hard question. <laughs> this is a really hard question because medical school economics are founded on tuition payments and uh, and around class sizes and um, and and those kinds of things. Um, so you don't want to create a so medical schools are reluctant to create a disincentive for people to come. I, I think that some of it is that the the data that we provide and the training that we provide has to be more focused on. What are the economics of healthcare? Right down to the level of, I, I think every residency program, and I did this when I was a residency program director, should get information about what the total cost of care, the average total cost of care is for the patient population that they're dealing with and understand what that means and how what they do every day affects that total cost of care. When I make a decision that I'm going to give somebody a medication rather than do an operation, I, you know, I, right, most of our training programs don't, include the fact that, hey, you're spending a lot less money doing that. So make choices. Like as an example, we don't have as much of drug rep kinds of things coming in talking about the next, you know, expensive antibiotic. But um, we now, you know, very few places, but we're doing it, um, have a way to show people the antibiotic you have prescribed costs $5 signs like we do for, you know, the expense in a restaurant. But our laboratory says that these antibiotics, which cost $1 sign or $2 signs, have the same susceptibility for the most common bacteria. So would you like to switch to this less expensive antibiotic? 
We need to do that kind of work. We need to educate people about, hey, it's great to do the highest and best technology, but let's do it on the people who truly need it, not because it's so cool to do. I mean, maybe the classic example of that is robotic surgery. We have over-robotic surgery in this country to a a degree that's absurd um, uh, because it's really cool. And because every hospital and every doctor started to think that if I don't do robotic surgery, nobody's going to come to me for care because everybody wants the latest and greatest. But in fact, we've shown that in the vast majority of cases, robotic surgery is either no better or actually worse than laparoscopic or conventional surgery, and that there are very few circumstances which robotics are actually better in terms of outcome for the patient. One of the greatest studies that I've seen about that is actually in hysterectomies, where it showed that it was three times as expensive um, and that the complication rate was three times higher than laparoscopic uh, or open surgery doing robotic surgery, and that the robotic surgery, in fact, lasted two and a half times longer. So the exposure to anesthesia was two and a half times longer. But in this country, there are still an enormous number of robotic hysterectomies being done because it's cool and people you know, want to feel like they're at the cutting edge of technologic advancement. We're not actually helping people and we're spending a lot more money and, and in many cases we're harming people. We don't train people on that. We need to, that's the kind of stuff that needs to be inside training. Um, it doesn't. I don't think it actually costs more to train that way. It's just moving the curriculum to a more economically focused curriculum and a more social determinants focused curriculum from a um, disease management curriculum. One of the other things I'd like to get your your thoughts on. I'm going to take a little bit of a curve here, but we know that the amount of debt that our medical students and residents are graduating with is astronomical compared to when you and I graduated from our training programs. And we also have this disparity in in this country that persists to this day that uh, procedural-based specialties who are dealing with acute medicine, trauma, orthopedics, neurosurgery, those types of of physicians uh, have a much different earning potential than physicians who are focused on medical care and especially those who would focus on preventive care. So it seems like we've created a bit of a a difficulty for our students in training, even those who would be interested in providing care that would keep people healthy and well, because the economics of it just don't work. I'd like to get your thoughts on that and how that can be addressed. Sure. So we have parallel Faustian bargains in what we've done uh, in terms of the cost of training. Um, the, the first Faustian bargain is that we said to medical students that if you pay us, and we have escalated the cost of that tr- dramatically in this country over the last 40 years, but if you pay us, what we guarantee you is that you will get a residency spot, and that residency spot will allow you then to practice and earn an income that will more than enable you to pay off that debt. And the problem is that that curve has kind of plateaued and it's actually getting harder and harder to pay off that debt because the debt, which when we made that original bargain, you know, the average debt of a medical student coming out was somewhere between 50 and a hundred thousand dollars total. Today, the average debt of a medical student is somewhere between 280 and $350,000. But the inflation of salaries has not 
in any way kept up with that. Um, so that's one Faustian bargain. The second Faustian bargain that we have made is that because to the hospital and the health system, people who do procedures, whether it's surgical or, or minimally invasive, are much more valuable in terms of revenue stream for the hospital than people who are E&M coders. The hospitals then decided to employ those folks and pay them more and more money. Um, it is impossible in this country to say that a neurosurgeon is worth four or five times a primary care doctor, but we pay a neurosurgeon four or five times what we pay a primary care doctor because to the hospital, that neurosurgeon is worth 10 times what a primary care doctor is worth in a fee-for-service world. And um, medical students are smart people, and they look at those uh, pay scales and they say, you know, if I go into primary, I better love primary care and not really want to do procedural work because I know that I'm going to pay off my debt much more easily and I'm, and I'm going to have a different kind of lifestyle if I'm a neurosurgeon or a gastroenterologist or a cardiologist or, a, you know, or a urologist or a head and neck surgeon, et cetera, then I will if I'm an endocrinologist or if I'm a rheumatologist or I'm from primary care doctor or those kind or a neurologist. And not surprisingly, we the rates of, of people going into those fields have struggled. So E&M coding fields have struggled and procedural fields have had no difficulty getting people. And there are some apocryphal findings around that. As an example, ophthalmology used to be the most difficult residency program to get into in the 80s and 90s. And in the late 90s, the federal government decided to stop paying $1,200 per cataract and instead paid $125 per cataract. And ophthalmology went from being the hardest specialty to get into to be a middle-of-the-road specialty. Um, Cardiothoracic surgery fellowships in the 70s, 80s, 90s were the most difficult fellowship to get into, and they were the highest paid doctors in the hospital because they brought in the largest amount of revenue for the hospital. And then statins came from the pharmaceutical industry, and our colleagues in cardiology in the cath lab invented the stint. And suddenly, there was not a lot of volume left for cardiothoracic surgeons to do cabbages. And that fellowship went from being the most difficult fellowship to get into to in the last 10 years, we only fill about 90% of the slots that are available in this country for cardiothoracic surgery fellowships. The, um, now, and then there's a third Faustian bargain, but that is within the last decade. And that is that the first Faustian bargain that we made where we said, hey, you will get a residency spot. There were always more graduate med medical med ed spots in this country than there were undergraduate med ed graduates. And that meant that foreign medical graduates filled give or take 10 or 12 percent of the residency programs in this country. And there was a whole program around visas, et cetera, et cetera. And um and those folks were a vital part of the health system because, interestingly, most of those foreign medical graduates who then did part of their training here were disproportionately taking jobs in rural areas in this country. And so they filled the bucket of rural practitioners. Over the last 10 years, because of the proliferation of uh, allopathic and osteopathic medical schools and the growth of allopathic medical school slots for, we have now reached a point where there are about 1,000 to 1,200 
American medical school graduates every year for whom there is no graduate med ed slot. There are fewer graduate med ed slots than there are undergraduate medical students graduating every year. So the Faustian bargain of, hey, you're going to pay us a ton of money, but we're going to guarantee that you're going to get an income has we've violated that for a large number of kids every single year over the last five, six years and accelerating. And that um, I I personally believe is eventually going to cause us to um, have to deal with the cost of medical education. Now, the cost of medical education has been a bit of a racket for medical schools because particularly medical, what, what has happened is that medical schools have done one of two things. They have either decided that they will own their own health system so that they can make money off the health system and they can fund their uh, academic work, or they have decided that they will not own a health system, but they will not pay as much money as the tuition that they require for the clinical education of those students. So we have medical schools who it costs you sixty-five, seventy, eighty thousand dollars a year of tuition, but only ten or twenty thousand dollars of that tuition is being used to pay the people who are doing your clinical education, and the medical school is pocketing the rest. And we have medical schools who are using their undergraduate medical education to, um, in essence, create a pipeline for their graduate med ed to feed their health system so that they have continuing practitioners to be able to take care of folks. And they're actually quite happy with, I have more proceduralists because in a fee-for-service world, the proceduralists are driving revenue into the hospital. And when the medical school either owns the hospital or is affiliated with the hospital where there's a revenue stream coming from the hospital, the medical school is deeply invested in the economics of that hospital. So we've covered covered a lot of areas. And it seems like, again, it's like, the conversation we had a month ago with value-based care, it's a very complicated, multifaceted system that's grown into what it is today over decades and hundreds of years. And in our last conversation, you mentioned the Flexner Report and its impact on medical education in the United States. So it seems it seems like at this point in time, we do have to have more of a focus on the education and training of medical students and residents if we're going to successfully bend the cost curve, like we talked about during our value-based care conversation. And I'd be interested to know, are you aware of any any medical schools or any residency programs or any organizations that are involved with medical education that have begun to implement these types of curriculum changes and this kind of culture change that we really need to see in our medical education programs? Sure. I'm aware of two. I I suspect that's not the only ones, but I'm Mm -hmm. aware of two. One is at Jefferson in Philadelphia. And the reason I'm aware of it is because when I was at Jefferson, I had a wonderful partner who was the dean at the time, Mark Dikachinsky. And we really did a huge effort to change the curriculum and have curriculum in every year of the four years of medical school dedicated around healthcare economics. I taught part of that um, and around preventive care and and how preventive care interacts with all specialties and not just primary care. And then that extended into some of the residency programs. And then I would say in my current role with Allegheny Health Network, um, we are starting to embed um, 
medical economic curriculums in our residency programs. So uh, not just in primary care, but in our surgery residency, in our OBGYN residency, uh, in our internal medicine residency, to try to um, display the data that we're now giving to our doctors about total cost of care of the patient population that they're working with so that medical students can start to interact with and understand some of the you know business side of medicine. Um, we talked in our last conversation about uh, about a slide that I use you know all the time, which is that healing is an art, medicine is a science, and healthcare is a business. We have been very good at the medicine as a science, very very sophisticated in our educational. Maybe less so about the healing as an art, but there's still a lot of work there that goes on, um, both in terms of experiential knowledge. Uh, from faculty to students um, and the experience of students. And now we are really trying to dive deeper into, you know, the economics and, and the, you know, the business side of medicine. And while some people, you know, say we're going to the dark side because it's all about suits and administration, the reality is that if we're going to bend the cost curve appropriately, if practitioners don't understand the economics of the work that they do, then it's very difficult to change behaviors to ensure that we are doing the highest quality work at the lowest cost. Well, thank you, Bruce. That, uh, I think we ended a little bit on a hopeful note there that we are seeing some change. And I think I do think that the recognition of the need is is there in the healthcare community. I think I, th- I certainly think that there are a lot of people talking about how do we solve some of these problems in medical education and graduate medical education But I've enjoyed our conversation again today. I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, appear as a guest again on the show. And I know that the the faculty and uh, Kate Ashley, who's been helping me put these together, will really appreciate the fact that you are, are still so committed to helping share your knowledge with the Pemba alumni. Super. Thank you. It's really a pleasure. And I'll just mention, you know, Pemba has graduated. I'm not exactly sure how many folks Pemba has graduated, but we got to be well over 700, 800. These are the folks who can lead this kind of change. These are the folks who can lead this kind of transformation. That's right. That's a good reminder. So thank you again, Bruce. And I'll look forward to talking to you again soon. Look forward to it as well. Take care. That wraps up our show for today. Thank you very much for joining and listening to the podcast. If you have any comments or questions regarding this episode, please feel free to add them in the comment section on our website, tiny.utk.edu forward slash POD podcast. We love hearing from you and are happy to answer any questions you may have. I will add a link to the website below. Please also don't forget to subscribe to the podcast by clicking the subscribe button. Add Pemba On Demand to your podcast library today. I would also appreciate it if you could leave a review of the podcast on your podcast player. Share the podcast with your friends and colleagues also. Please take good care of yourselves. And as always, good luck with your future.